Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio, a podcast for public health professionals looking to expand their network, be inspired, and discover resources and tools that help improve the experience of public health professionals and patients in their communities. I'm your host, Fran. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Reach Radio. I am honored to be able to introduce you to Suzanne Noble, who is a serial entrepreneur who is working with the older adult community. She has a social enterprise called Advantages of Age, helping those over 50 years of age to access a pro-aging community of like-minded people through a large and growing Facebook group. She doesn't stop there. She's got several other amazing programs that she is currently conducting, all to help empower seniors to live more active and prosperous lives. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, friend, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're really excited to have you today and to learn more about the great work of your organization. So why don't you get us started? Tell us about the work you're doing. Well, it all began nearly five years ago now. I was hanging out with a bunch of my girlfriends and we were bemoaning the fact that the media's representation of us as older women didn't align with how we felt didn't align with how we saw ourselves. And the media was, you know, sort of suggesting that we were all over the hill and that life was done. We're all in our late 50s, 50s and 60s. And we just said, that's not how we feel. And I have a background in PR and writing. And I was, and similarly, the women I was talking to also had a background in in that area. And one of them just said very offhand, actually, why don't we start something called Advantages of Age? And I said, okay, that sounds great. And I think they just sort of, that was just a flippant kind of comment. It was around Christmas time. And I went away and built a website called it Advantages of Age and started curating content about positive aging. Because if the media is reflecting back at us that life is is over when you're over 50, then many people, that's how they feel. You know, they feel like, well, if that's what they're telling me, then that's how I'm going to feel. So we very much set out to challenge that narrative. And over the years, I have been working as a result of that in different aspects of aging, because once I did that, we started attracting a community of people that felt positive about aging. We saw that It wasn't just our small group of people. We set up a Facebook community that's now grown to nearly 4,000 people, which is quite global um, beyond the UK. And we have, and now much of my work is centered around two aspects that became, have over the years, it's kind of moved into, which is employment and the challenges I was seeing around older people being made redundant, losing their jobs, and again, their sense of purpose and value and how I could support them into self-employment because that was my background and around housing because, again, based on my own lived experience, I started sharing my home with someone my own age in my 50s. And I recognized that this style of living was not exclusive to just me. And the more I started researching the challenge of finding affordable accommodation when you're older, the more I realized that actually it's a huge, huge problem, not just for younger people, but for older people as well. So I set up um, a tech for good platform called Nestful, and we match older homeowners with rooms to spare with people seeking affordable accommodation. And similarly, I run a startup school for seniors, which is a not-for-profit, which is an online learning platform that 
helps people over 50 to start their own business. And I still have a very big community, but now I have moderators and people and and I get grant funding and all that good stuff. So yeah, it's kind of sprung out of this very random conversation. Well, it may seem like it was, but I mean, let's be honest. Let's look at the fantastic way of change in, in the demographic, right? The older adult population will be will be larger than the, there'll be more over 65 than under the age of 18 by the time we reach 2040. With that, that's actually kind of exciting in a way. I mean, it's going to change the way that we sort of look at ourselves and and that's important, right? I think you're sort of at the beginning on the front end of a new wave and starting to help to shape it in a very positive way. And you've mentioned so much there, Suzanne. I want to pause for a moment and talk about the mental health and self-image that comes along with media and how you've played a significant role and really kind of changing that paradigm, particularly for older women, because I mean, even though the number drastically declines in terms of representation of older people in general, seems like older men stay in popularity at least more than women do. So can you talk to us about what you have seen and how you've been part of this movement with the work that you're doing? I suspect that it affects both genders, but differently. So what I've seen is that when you're an older woman, there are clearly more aspects around aging that impact you, especially because we may have traded on our looks as an example or our sexual appeal for a great part of our lives because you know, part of being a woman is, you know, I think a lot of women do, I've noticed, when they no longer feel that they're visible in that way, that's a real challenge for them. So there's that aspect around feeling invisible. And there's a lot that's been said about feeling invisible and just not feeling like you've got much value. But also from a financial point of view, there are some very, very clear challenges that older women face, especially around having smaller pensions than men because they may have spent more time as caregivers and they might have spent less time in work. And so that means that their pension pots are smaller. So we see more later life poverty, for instance, in older women than we do in men. And that has a huge impact on mental health. And just what I've seen, again, anecdotally in working with people that have lost their job, in that for so many of us, our job was what gave us that sense of purpose. It gave us our values and especially men. And this is where sometimes it impacts men more, I think, is that if your expectation is that you are going to retire after 35 years of doing the same job in the same company or you know, over a significant period of your life, and then suddenly you lose your job unexpectedly, and we've seen that happen in hundreds of thousands as a result of COVID, for a lot of people, there's a huge sense of shame around that. And for a lot of people, and this is the part of the reason why some of the work I do tends to be working with people that have kind of come out of the depression that they've been in because they've lost their job and they've looked for something in the workplace that's similar. And then of course, they haven't been able to find it because the statistics around people that are 50 plus trying to find a new job once they've lost is that it takes them like over two times as long as a younger person. So they could be out of work for 12 to 18 months. And during that period of time, you know, they may suffer depression. This is the sort of stuff I've seen. They may feel this sense of shame. And then gradually 
what we've seen is that they kind of lift themselves out of it. They may start to do voluntary work. They may start to retrain, reskill, and think about what their options are. And that happens to both men and women, but it, it tends to impact women more. But I also think that older men are, are struggling in different ways. And perhaps biggest difference is that when older women are struggling, we tend to try and lean into our friends and to resources and things that are out there to try and make us feel better. Whereas men will just hide in a cave. They won't speak to anybody. They'll just get depressed and they'll just live in a cave and they'll just ignore everything and just pretend it's not happening. So we do see that most of our cohort is like 80% women, even though the guys are out there. I get it. So it's not that the need's not there. It's just that they're not reaching out for the help. Wow. So there's so much mentioned there. How do you prioritize it all? What would you say is your number one priority in all of the things that you're trying to accomplish? Um, That's a good question. <laughs> I'm not very good at prioritizing. I'm just doing as much as I can. Well, that's okay. You can just do it all. So maybe name some... <laughs> Yeah, that's hilarious. Just name some of the things that, you know, are really priority number one. And Um, there could be more than one. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose I was very lucky that my colleague and I got some grant funding in the middle of last year as a result of all the people that have been made unemployed. And we set up an e-learning platform and created over 25 hours worth of content. And that's Startup School for Seniors. And that's given us a great opportunity to reach so many more people than we would have done through physical delivery. And it's enabled us to also transform the way some funders see how their programs are delivered. Because I think grant funders traditionally are quite traditional in how they approach things. So if their beneficiaries are unemployed people or ex-offenders or victims of domestic abuse or whatever they happen to be, their first thing is, okay, where can we send them? Let's send them to a center. Let's send them to this place. And obviously COVID just made that impossible. So all of a sudden funders started to open up their mind to digital delivery, which over the past five years, I've never been able to get funding for despite desperately trying because they were just like, no, no, just go and deliver it in a physical place. So the fact that I've now been able to convince them to do this and they've seen that it works and we've now got a platform, I'd say the priority for us now is how we can scale that and make it sustainable from a financial point of view for our organization. And then with Nestle, my priority is mainly now just working through some of the challenges because we've rebuilt our site and waiting for people to move again <laughs> because, because they're not and waiting for the summer when hopefully we'll be back to some kind of normality and people will be looking for, for people to fill spare rooms and people will be looking to move. But at the moment, that's really, I can't push that more than I do already simply because people just are feeling very vulnerable still. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it sounds as though you've had any kind of time out to be able to sort of put things, it's kind of everything being developed at the, yeah. the same time as implementing it, right? Rolling it out. But it sounds like you guys are really rolling with the punches. Now, do you have volunteers who are assisting? How are you getting all of this work done? Yeah, so I have some great volunteers with advantages of age and I have a co-founder who's amazing as well. And with Nestle, I also have a great co-founder. And again, we have lots of volunteers and interns and 
I'm very good at trying to find people to just help out when, when they can. I suppose one of the great things about when you work in the impact space and social impact space, people want to help because they want to support things that are helping others. So it's not like when you're working for a for-profit, even though my Nestle is a for-profit, but it's still a tech for good business. So we're still looking to create impact. That's really, really commendable, the work that your organization is doing. Let's talk about the housing scenario that you had mentioned earlier. Tell us a little bit more about those dynamics. As I said, when I started Nestle, it was mainly based on my own lived experience and looking at my advantages of age group and using them as a focus group to try and uncover whether or not my situation was unique. And after six months of working with a researcher, we did lots of interviews with people and we felt that there was a real sort of cultural It was a cultural trend. And we were seeing that as, again, quoting some stats, there's going to be one in three people over 65 renting by 2040. So clearly the housing market is becoming unaffordable to many young people who are not going to be so young in 20 years time. And that's going to create a wave of people that will be renting for life. In the UK, we have a high percentage of over 55s that are homeowners because during the 1980s, housing was very, very affordable. So most of our generation or 55% of over 55 are homeowners, but that doesn't mean that we can actually afford to live in our homes. So we've got a home, that's great, but it still comes with bills and repairs and all sorts of things like that. So the big challenge is that people want to age in place. 80% of older people want to remain in their homes. They don't want to go into care homes. They don't want to be institutionalized in that way. But how are you going to remain in your home when, if you're an older woman, going back to you know poverty in later life with women, you don't have enough money? So my solution was, okay, you can try and downsize, but that might become difficult if you want to remain in your community and you might not want to do that. So then the next solution for me was, okay, well, you got some spare rooms because your kids have left home or, or whatever. Why not rent them out? And that was felt to me like something practical that could be done straight away without having to build housing developments or all this stuff that older people love to talk about, which is co-housing communities. And I want to live with my friends in a you know, in lots of tiny houses on a plot of land in the middle of somewhere beautiful and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, great. How are you going to do that? And then you work out, you're not, it's not going to happen. So Again, for me, it was just like, well, this is a practical solution that can happen right now. And let's see if we can convince enough people that it's a good idea. We do have a history in this country of people living in this way. So it's not that unusual. And also we don't have some of the strict regulations around co-living that the states does. We don't have zoning laws and everything that make it more problematic in America. So we don't have any of that. And it's probably the loosest from a regulatory point of view way of living here. So that means there's not like huge hurdles when it comes to people thinking, well, what if it doesn't work out? How am I going to manage this? So yeah, that's how I got into it. And of course, then you look at, well, what are the other demographics that need homes? Well, students need homes. We found lots of men whose wives have kicked them out and they suddenly find themselves sofa surfing in their 60s and all of that. So there's, I call it the three Ds, which is death, debt, and divorce, which create these circumstances, which means that people need to find somewhere to live. 
So those are real realities that you know you're just putting them right out there, Suzanne. <laughs> and they do affect our health, right? So this is the reality. And as we age as well, unfortunately, we often face challenges, whether it's our visual or auditory acuity or dexterity. Eventually, you know, something compromises us. And unfortunately, a lot of people have chronic diseases and trying to manage our health and stay well, you just having all those other things to contend with, like having to manage, figure out where you're going to live, just shouldn't have to be something to have to grapple with, right? So I love the way that you're being creative and the way that you're going about helping individuals. Are you finding that, I mean, some would would describe as part of the definition of homelessness, that if you are sleeping on other people's sofas, that you're actually in a state of homelessness, even if it's your friend's couch, right? So how have other institutions and stakeholders who are vested in seeing this issue be addressed, supporting and engaging with your organization? So it's interesting because, as you said, homelessness is not necessarily the guy on the street. It's a person who doesn't have a home. That's what it is. And as you acknowledge, that can take many forms. So I still find that there's a view that boomers have kind of got it on easy street because what we find, again, the media pointing out is, oh, well, you know, you're the guys who are able to afford homes. You are the guys who are able to do that. So we don't need to worry about you. So on the level of need, we're not viewed as being needy, but clearly there are more and more people who are finding themselves in these circumstances and they are challenged in finding places that will help them. And that's why they come to us. So we get support from organizations like Age UK, for instance. But what I found is that mainly when people talk about older people, they tend to address people at end of life. So when they talk about later life living, they tend to address end of life. And so they talk about social care and they talk about how can we improve the quality of care in care homes? But then there's this group of people that are mainly 55 to 75, and they may not have health issues, but they may have mental health issues because they've lost their homes and they don't have a place to live. So, and those people, there's not a lot out there for them. They can try to find shared housing, but mainly that's going to be aimed at much younger people. So I'm currently working with various organizations who are trying to work out, okay, how can they support us? And we're still trying to figure that one out because we don't fit neatly into either housing for young people or housing for end of life. We kind of sit in this blurry area and no one is really looking at it. And the property developers and people that I'm speaking to, I mean, there's retirement communities in the States. We don't really have those here. They're saying to me, you know, we like, we want to do something for the group that you're talking about. We just didn't know how to access them. And so that's why as developers, we tend to focus on students because we know they're at school and that's where they are. So it's easy to kind of market to them. And marketing to this group is challenging because they're not all on social media. You can't necessarily find them in the usual ways that you might. Again, if you were later life and you were struggling with mobility issues or underlying health conditions, you would probably go to your doctor or you would go to something and they would start referring you through the pathways that exist 
for that later life stage, right? But when you're in that middle bit, like you've gotten divorced and you're struggling on your sofa surfing, what's it going to do for you if you go to your doctor? What are they going to tell you? You know, sorry about that. Wow, this is really challenging because as we talked about earlier in the conversation, the numbers are increasing. So developers may be developing for what is now not the trend. It's not the students aren't the trend. How do you respond to them? What do you say to that? It's interesting because the statistics are available that show what's going to happen. So it's not like we don't know this stuff. And frankly, I know it's not very sexy, which is probably why the investment community is not that excited about the opportunity because they can't pigeonhole it in the same way that they would some young techie thing that's also exciting or similarly putting robotics in a care home or some newfangled gadget that's going to help you connect with your grandma or, or whatever it happens to be, right? Those things are all kind of fun and people can see them. So we are only just at the very beginning of seeing people start thinking about and responding to the challenges, but it feels very early. And I suspect that maybe in the next five to 10 years, we will be seeing more people recognizing what's happening and starting to plan for it. And certainly if you look at Japan as an example, which is way ahead of us, they have done that. You know, there are flexible working conditions and all sorts of stuff that are aimed at at helping older people continue to work into older age and all sorts of things that are new ways of living. They're not perfecting it, but I'm seeing more more innovation in Asia than I am in Europe and probably the States. Yeah, you're spot on. That's a very accurate observation. The shift in in demographics is happening all over the world. This is a global situation that we're going to have to deal with and it's impacting us in, in so many ways. You mentioned mental health earlier. Are you engaging with stakeholders in the mental health space, a couple with the programs that you're offering? So mental health sits alongside the work that we do, especially in Startup School for Seniors, because much of the work around employment is around building confidence and resilience. So the questions that we ask before people start on the course is things like, how confident do you feel? You know, how are you um, currently coping with this? We're not going deep into, and we do have people that acknowledge that they've got some mental health issues, whether it's struggling with depression, as an example, or other issues that might be more related to ADHD or autism or whatever. We're not mental health practitioners and we don't engage with people in that way. We're not, you know, but we do recognize that building digital confidence just by using our platform, getting to grips with using Zoom, digital literacy, building up the confidence, having the support of your peers who are also in the same boat as you is a huge part of what helps people to get out of that feeling of I'm I'm past it, I'm over. So I think it plays a significant part. That's excellent that you're able to offer it and that you acknowledge that it's needed, right? And start to do some things to address it. Earlier, you sort of talked to Suzanne about funding and challenges that go along with that. But I'm curious to know what other types of challenges as your organization is growing. And it sounds like you're growing quite rapidly, right? So what are some of the challenges that your organization is facing and 
who might be some of the partners that you might want to bring in to help collaborate and work on these issues? So in terms of financial sustainability, certainly one of the big challenges of being an early stage business is that, especially a not-for-profit, is that you have to acknowledge that probably the first year to two years, you're going to be writing a lot of applications for grants. <laughs> and I think in the past month, I've done four. So you just become a kind of grant machine because until you get enough evidence that what you're doing is working to the point where you're either going to get repeat you know, procurement. So we work with local government, we work with grant givers, and now we're looking at doing a paid for program. So we're still working out what does the financial model look like and how can we keep going even if we don't get some funding from a local government, right? So that's always, I just have to acknowledge that that every early stage business is going to struggle with that. And then eventually you get to the point where someone says, okay, we're going to give you a substantial amount of money so that you can hire other people and scale this up and do this work across multiple geographies and all sorts of things. But at the moment, it's very much like balls in the air. You just have to go, oh, grant application, I'm going to fill it in. Another one, I'm going to fill it in. And hope that you know your hit rate is, is pretty good. It was pretty good um, last year. And then most recently, we just had a couple of rejections and we were just like, okay, you just have to you know roll with the punches. So yeah, I suppose that's always an early stage challenge is just just getting that financial model working so that you can pay yourself. And But going beyond that, right? Like going beyond yeah. that, I mean, in terms As, of, for example, the needs that are coming up perhaps in your membership. It's again about how there's always two challenges that I say every organization has always the same two challenges. I don't care who they are, which is access to capital, access to networks. So access to networks is, you know, finding those partner organizations who can potentially, we can share beneficiaries so that we're collaborating in a more integrated way. So other people are looking at mental health issues with older people and they recognize that 50% of those people are thinking about starting a business, they can send them our way. So what you don't want to have to do all the time is finding new people to support You want to keep continuing to support the people that you've been supporting in multiple ways. So, you know, that's another thing we're looking at is, okay, once you've come through the course, how can we continue to support you? Is it monthly peer support group? Is it further training that we can give you? Who's going to deliver that training? How are we going to deliver that? What forms are going to take? So all of those sorts of questions. And I think that's that, again, relates back to the age group being somewhat challenging in terms of how you find how you find them. Very interesting. Absolutely interesting. And then in terms of the fact that you've been able to overcome those challenges, right? I'd be curious to know and our listeners would be curious to know what resources or tools have you found to be invaluable in the work that you're doing and perhaps one that's maybe less uh, utilized or underappreciated perhaps. I suspect that we were quite lucky when we started five years ago, it was actually in 2016 or 2017, we set up a Facebook group. And at that point, it was quite easy to attract members. And more recently, Facebook has been spending a lot of time trying to become a kind of community hub. So organizations like ourselves get first dibs at some of the new tools that Facebook are offering regarding, you know, creating events or monetizing our group or all sorts of things. And 
that group has just been the main way that we've been able to attract people to the various activities and courses and things that we do. So I would say it's time consuming. And now we have someone who's gets paid to moderate it. So it's not, this is not an easy thing, but I, I would say that for us, especially if you're dealing with the over fifties, they're all on Facebook and they all sit on it during COVID. So having that place where they can go and have a conversation has proved to be just invaluable. Plus they're just like a 24 hour focus group. You can start to see themes coming through in terms of the conversations that people are having. For instance, what do your retirement plans look like? And then, you know, 80% go, what retirement plans? There's no retirement in my life. I mean, I haven't got a big enough pension. I haven't got any pension. I'm scared to death of what's going to happen. I've got no safety net whatsoever, nothing. And you see these long, you know, hundreds of comments. You're like, okay, this is, this is serious. This is serious stuff that's going on here. So it's a great way to just kind of gauge the temperature of of what we're doing and see where the opportunities are. Unfortunately, the problem with it as well is that for every time that you get presented with a long list of people kind of talking about something, which is a clear problem that needs a solution, my immediate entrepreneurial brain is to think how I can solve this. I'm like, oh, okay, I got to sort that one out. And I just have to stop myself and go, no, you're not going to sort out their dating problems as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you might partner with an organization that does, right? Isn't that Possibly. a group? That's a group yeah. that's out there, right? Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> but yeah, I just keep, also, I'm a bit of a, a geek. And so there's a whole series and suite of tools now that you can use called No Code. And I've become completely obsessed with this. And so I just keep building things. I just keep going, oh, that looks fun. Let me build that. Let me build that. Oh, I can build that thing I was thinking about. You know, then I've got another thing to manage. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, Suzette, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. If someone were wanting to get a hold of you, contact you, learn more about your organization, what's the best way for them to reach you? There's two places. It's Suzanne. My email is Suzanne at advantagesofage.com and it's advantages of age. And then the academy.advantages of age, that's our not-for-profit. And then Nestful, which is N-E-S-T-F-U-L dot I-O is our one around housing. Those are the two main things. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It was very enjoyable. And I hope that together we can solve some of the many challenges that go on in the world, especially around mental health. Okay, audience, you guys have heard it first. So let's make sure we start reaching out to Suzanne. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio. This program is made possible by listeners like you. To learn more about Reach and to support this program, visit www.reachtl.org.